Well, if any of you were watching the American religious scene closely last week, you might have learned that the world was supposed to end on Wednesday. My, one of my favorite things this week was a, a friend who, who posted a picture of one of those cards, you know, with the check boxes. It's like those cards you get at Mill Valley Market, but instead of buying sandwiches, it was how many times have you survived the rapture? <laughs> Survive it nine times, you get the tenth for free. <laughs> right? We laugh, but obviously some of our brothers and sisters take this stuff very seriously. And making a solid prediction about when the world will end matters a lot to them. It's odd what matters to us, and that, that quest, that hunger, that that deep longing for certainty, for guarantees, for knowing for sure. That takes me back to my years as a graduate student, actually months, years is not accurate, months as a graduate student in music, and sitting in the studio of my wonderful piano teacher at Northwestern, Dr. Wong was implacably honest with me, never pulled her punches, and I had been practicing for eight hours a day, and I was close to the edge of burnout, and I was wondering if there was a future for me in music. And Dr. Wong said to me, Richard, she said, there are no guarantees in music. Well, I. I could hardly believe it. I mean, surely if I worked hard enough, God and the world would see and reward that work with a career. A few months later, I found myself leaving Northwestern, and I came over to the church seeking guarantees there. It took a few years to unravel that little confusion as well, right? The truth of the matter is there are no guarantees in life, are there? Most of us learn that sooner or later. And today's readings are all about there being no guarantees, no certainty. It opens with this primordial text from the book of Job probably some of the earliest written scripture we have. This text probably predates the writing down of Genesis. And Job, if you remember the story, becomes the object of a gamble between Satan and God. And the gamble is over Job's righteousness and whether it is authentic. And Satan challenges God and says, you will see what happens to Job's righteousness when you take everything away from him. Skin for skin, he says. And so everything is taken away from Job, his wealth, his household, his family, even he loses all of his children. And he is left sitting in sackcloth and ashes with a dreaded skin disease. And Job's friends come along, and they fall into that wonderful category with friends like this, who needs enemies? 
and they begin to suggest to him that it's all his fault. Because that's the standard theology, right? If something bad happens to you, it must be your fault. And Job protests his innocence and his righteousness, and his friends talk themselves by this point in the story to silence. Even Job's wife is not much help, truth be told. She just tells Job, look, curse God and die. Get it over with. Like any good spouse, she's probably reached the point where I'm tired of hearing the complaining. Just get on with it. Even if it's the worst thing in the world. But Job learns in that awful silence, after all of that is done and over, as he sits there, destitute, in that place, that there are no guarantees. And so he must enter what a mystic millennia later would call the dark night of the soul, which is so beautifully captured in our reading today of Psalm 22, which comes up again in our lectionary for those of you who remember during Holy Week. It is the psalm we read on Good Friday as Jesus is hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The dark night of the soul is what continues in today's gospel in Mark. And it concerns this rich man who comes to Jesus and he has done everything he possibly can to get the contract right with God. He has obeyed the laws of his ancestors. He has attended faithfully to what he has received. He has done all things right in the eyes of his neighbors and of himself, and he believes of his God. So all that is left, all that is left is for God to sign on the dotted line to have, have that guarantee in place, that warranty. And so he comes to Jesus to check. Anything else? Do I need another clause here? Another paragraph in the agreement. Jesus looks at him. And then Mark tells us something he tells us about no one else in the gospel. He says Jesus loves him. Jesus loves him. And then, like Dr. Wong all those years ago says to him, there are no guarantees. What you must do is you must relinquish that which binds you, the wealth that you have. And the rich man enters a dark night of the soul. He is shattered. Jesus nails him, you might say. And he goes away grieving. His disciples are perplexed, of course, because 
Their world is like our world. Common sense says that if you're well off in material things, you must have God's favor somewhere. Or we might call it luck or good fortune. Or, as we all know in the American context, we claim our hard work got us what we have. But Jesus says it is easier for the camel to get through the eye of the needle than for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's that rabbinical way in which he pushes in the knife and then he starts to turn it just a little bit. Just, just, just so, you know, it really hits home and he won't let go. As an aside, I don't normally like to get into the fineries of exegesis, but this is a very interesting passage. The camel in the eye of the needle sounds like a very strange metaphor to our ears, right? We have a rather romanticized interpretation which sounds very first century and very Middle Eastern about how the eye of the needle is a metaphor for a little gate in the side of the city wall and when the main gate is shut, the only way to get a camel through that is to take everything off the camel, all the baggage it's carrying. It's lovely, isn't it? Makes perfect sense. You have to shed everything to get in to the kingdom, except that most scholars now think that's hooey. It's a nice notion, but it's a little bit forced. There's something that many scholars think now is a little bit more prosaic. And that is, in the second century, there was a scribe somewhere who was copying the text of Mark and made an error. The word camelos in Greek means camel. You change one letter and it becomes camilos, which means rope. Think about that for a minute. It makes more sense, doesn't it? sounds more like Jesus, a really simple notion of getting the rope through the eye of the needle. Most of us have tried that with just thick yarn and know how far that gets us. The meaning, of course, is the same. How difficult it is. But, Jesus says, and this is what we need to hear in the wealthy and liberal West, but... What is impossible for mortals is possible for God. He points back to the love he has for the rich man. Peter, as usual, opens his mouth before he engages his brain and says, look, Lord, look at all the things we have left behind to come and follow you. And if you look at the way Mark phrases it, it's very clear that Jesus interrupts Peter before he can get any further down that road and says, yes, many have done all of these things, left brothers and sisters and houses and homes and good jobs and careers and guarantees and whatnot and have come to follow me and they inherit a bigger family, a bigger household, A home that has many, many places. And then he pricks the bubble of Peter's pride by saying, and feels with persecutions. Why? Because this kingdom of God business does not operate 
in the ways the world operates. It's not a contractual relationship. God is not going to come and sign on that dotted line. You will not know what extra clause or paragraph you need to satisfy and curry divine favor. The implication is clear. We are loved anyway. The question for us is not one of guarantees and certainty, although we must wrestle with that often in the dark night of the soul. Job will receive God's answer next week. Stay tuned. But the question is when this love is offered for the beauty that God sees in each of us, when this love is offered to unbind us from all that holds us in our narrow ways and paths, that idolatry that was crushing me while I was at Northwestern and sometimes comes and haunts me even while I work for the church, that obsession with getting it right and wanting that guarantee blinds me to the simple truth that God loves me just as God loves you just as God loves us all and all of creation and does not just behold us but loves us into being and loves us so that we might be free A friend of mine wonders if the rich man, whom we never hear from again in the Gospel of Mark, goes home and never looks at his affluence quite the same way again. Perhaps his grieving, his dark night of the soul, is only the beginning of a process of healing and redemption that will utterly change him in God's love. Will it change you, too? It's in the business of changing me. It's like that little magnet that was on a filing cabinet in the little church that I attended when I was growing up. It had a picture of a caterpillar on it. And it said quite simply, God isn't done with me yet. How about you? This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G We wish you God's peace 
we hope to greet you in person very soon.